0: So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's episode is monitored by Garmin. If you're sick of charging your fitness smartwatch every night, Garmin gives you up to 11 days of battery life on a single charge. So if you want a smartwatch that stays on your wrist and not on your charger, head to garmin.com.au to find out more and use my code lian 10 on any venue SQ2 for a limited time only. Now here's our podcast. Our extra special guest today is my very good friend and my Nutrition Couch co-host, Susie Burrell. Susie is an accredited practicing dietitian who has an honors degree in psychology as well as a master's degree in coaching psychology from Sydney University. Susie specializes in weight loss, hormone-related issues, including PCOS and insulin resistance. And we are so very fortunate to have her on the podcast today. Make sure you give her a follow on her socials, which are at Susie Burrell Dietitian or on her website, which also has her coaching services listed, which is susieborough.com.au. On today's potty, Susie and I chat about insulin resistance. We talk about how someone develops it, how it's diagnosed, if you need to be overweight to be at risk, some hallmark symptoms, nutrition strategies to assist, how endocrinologists can be helpful, and her top takeaway messages. Now grab a pen and paper and make sure you refer some friends to this episode, as I'm sure we all know someone who may benefit And Susie gives us tons of knowledge bombs the whole way through. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back, Susie, to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. We are very honored to have such a specialist on our podcast today. This is funny, isn't it? It's a little bit strange. (laughs) This is how we first met, going back two and a
1: half years. And a lot's happened since then, hasn't it? So I have to learn to be quiet and not ask any questions.
0: And for for anyone that's been living under a rock for the better part of the last two years, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and then also throw in our fabulous potty, the Nutrition Couch Potty, and how (laughs) we actually came together? Well, I am a dietitian by trade. Um, I had always wanted to be a dietitian.
1: I've been a dietitian for more than 20 years now. And I started working actually in sports nutrition and then evolved more into specializing just in weight management. And I was very lucky, actually. I worked for quite a few years with a very well-known, experienced endocrinologist who since retired, Dr. Warren Kidson, who had a real interest in hormonal dysfunction in women, which was focused on PCOS, fertility, and insulin resistance. So just over time working with him, I evolved to really specialize, I guess, in that area of hormones and weight. And off the back of understanding that it's not, for some people, a matter of calories in versus calories out. You know, indeed, you and and I were, were taught that it's calories in, calories out when it comes to weight control. But that was, as I said, several years ago, and it was really before we understood the role of some of the key hormones involved in fat metabolism and the key one we're going to speak about today, which is insulin. And the profound effect that has on our body's ability to burn body fat. And so just over time, working with women in particular and weight control, I've, I guess, become a specialist in that hormonal area. And I I actually thought, Leanne, when you said to me what I record for your main podcast, Leanne Ward Nutrition, which is probably the, I would say, the premium nutrition podcast, which goes into real depth, um, evidence-based nutritional science, like you've got this amazing back catalogue and you'd worked on that, I think, for three or four years Prior to us working on the nutrition couch in the past 18 months, I thought we covered insulin resistance. So (laughs) when you said, Can I do insulin resistance? I was like, Oh, sure, I'll have to get some new research. But when we first spoke in detail, we covered like media and label reading. So we haven't done it, which is fantastic. Because it's such a fascinating area in general in terms of the profound effect it has on body composition and weight control and and the ability to get weight loss results. But that's how we probably met formally, wasn't it? So I I knew you from dietetics, you were the first big Instagram dietitian, but then you had this amazing podcast and, and we sort of spoke and I said to you after having a great chat, hey, you know, I really want to do a podcast that's on nutrition news and we have said this before publicly, but you said, no, (laughs) you turned me down. I got blankly rejected and I had to kind of beg, but lucky for David, the amazing David, your husband, he talked you into it. And here we are over a million downloads later, heading to 2 million for our weekly podcast, which we encourage people to subscribe to if you haven't, because that is where we do our best work, isn't it? hundred percent. And it's a free
0: podcast. (laughs) It's available worldwide. The Nutrition Couch podcast, we post a lot more frequently than I do on this podcast. I constantly get um, messages saying, "Leanne, is your podcast the Leanne Ward Nutrition one still going?" And I'm like, "It is," but I must say, I do dedicate a lot more time these days to the Nutrition Couch because it is going so well. It is very topical, you know, media sort of trending topics as well. Um, this one I do love, but you know, trying to find expert guests who are evidence based is actually really difficult. Um, and some of the most brilliant scientists out there really struggle to translate the research into science and to have a really great conversation that breaks it down at an appropriate sort of population-based level of knowledge to understand. So it is really difficult for me to actually find guests, which is why when I thought, you know what, I actually haven't covered insulin resistance, and I thought, oh, I've got to get Susie on. I was like, she'll be mortally offended if I don't ask her. But also, she's one of the key experts in this area, and you have been working with these women for a very long time, so you were the perfect guest to come back on.
1: Yeah, that would have been a bit uncomfortable if you got someone else, wouldn't it? It would have been strange. <laughs> but I will say, quite a few of my clients, actually, and I'm not blowing smoke up you, but... A couple, few of my clients who I've seen on programs for quite a long time and they become more and more interested in nutrition have gone on to listen to Leanne Ward Nutrition and do love it. And I have to say, even though it's not perhaps as often as Nutrition Couch, the content is amazing quality when you do get those guests. So we'll continue to find great people over the course of the year and when you've got time, because it is time when you're doing these kind of projects to find um, people and record and allocate that time to edit. But no, the quality of Leanne Ward Nutrition is really high. So if you haven't, if our Nutrition Couch podcast listeners haven't listened, you'll find some great topics in there too.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Well, let's dive into insulin resistance. It is a topic I must admit I would love to know a little bit more about. So I don't work with a lot of clients who who have insulin resistance and I know that you do. So I'm very excited to sort of pick your brains on this topic today. But as always, I think we need to start with the basics. So for anyone listening at home who sort of says, oh, you know, I've heard of it before, but I'm not really sure what it is or isn't that for someone with diabetes or don't you have to be overweight to have that? We'll start with the basics. What exactly is sort of the definition of insulin resistance? So insulin
1: is the central regulator of glucose and fat metabolism in the body. So it's a hormone we all have. It's produced by the pancreas. And whenever we eat carbohydrates, so any bread, rice, cereal, pasta, sugar, fruit, the body will naturally release insulin in response to that. And a person is in what we call balance or homeostasis when our insulin secretion matches our carbohydrate or glucose uh, demands in the body. So what happens in the case of insulin resistance, it's a clinical condition. It's not something that you can self-diagnose. It does need to be technically medically diagnosed by a certain diagnostic criteria, which we'll speak about. But in insulin resistance, the insulin levels are unable to successfully manage glucose levels in the blood. So it's a condition that has a genetic predisposition, a genetic component to it. Not everyone will develop it, but it's certainly changes the way we metabolize glucose over time. So insulin resistance develops over a period of time. It doesn't just come one day. And what will be happening in the background is a result of a genetic predisposition, a high carbohydrate diet or a highly refined carbohydrate diet in which you are um, perhaps having a lot of processed type carbohydrates, so white rice, white bread, and eating that as a large component of the diet. Coupled with the muscle's reduction in ability to to process that carbohydrate well, over time, basically, the muscle cell will become flooded with too much glucose. And as such, the body has to respond on a day-to-day basis by secreting more insulin. And basically, insulin, as its basic role, is to store body tissue. So it's a storage hormone. Bodybuilders like it. It stores both fat and muscle tissue. And so over time, if you are secreting too much insulin and not exercising enough, so your muscle's not processing it well or processing the, the glucose well, so needing more insulin, the body builds up a resistance to it. So I want to really stress that this won't happen to everyone. Not everyone will become insulin resistant, but if you have that genetic predisposition or certain cultural backgrounds who, who are automatically predisposed to insulin resistance, and have a high processed carbohydrate diet plus are quite inactive over time. So you're not burning off that carbohydrate in your muscles. You might have a very sedentary job. You may have been an ex-athlete, so have a lot of muscle mass and then over time not be burning that anymore. And basically over time, your body can become resistant. Now, what we call the insulin resistance cycle is such where, you know, five, 10 years before diabetes, because we'll explain the link to diabetes in a minute. It's basically very early diabetes. So five to 10 years, your body's slowly increasing insulin over time. You're eating more carbohydrate. You're getting um, cravings for carbohydrate because what insulin does is help the glucose from our blood. So when we eat carbohydrate-containing food, have a banana, it's in the stomach, you release glucose into the bloodstream. Then the pancreas will come and release insulin to take that glucose molecule from the bloodstream into the muscle cell to be used as energy. And so what happens is, that glucose is not going in smoothly. You know, insulin has to work harder. It has to secrete more. So glucose is outside the cell wall for longer. Hence, higher blood glucose levels can be present over time. And it basically makes it harder for energy to reach our cells. So people can feel tired. They can feel very hungry because that natural cycle is not working as smoothly as it should. And when you're tired and hungry, you crave more glucose and carbohydrate. So then you eat more carbohydrate. And then over time, you're storing more fat because the body's making more insulin. So it's a terrible, terrible cycle. And so people will describe it as really, really hungry, even though they're carrying weight and they'll have often huge fluctuations in energy levels and glucose levels and have those terrible cravings that come that can drive that kind of binge eating of carbohydrate. So it's it's a fascinating um, condition, Leanne, because there's so many aspects to it. And I've probably rambled a little bit too long. But what I do want to stress, as you can see, it's multi-layered because it's impacting the pancreas, it's impacting the bloodstream, it's impacting the muscle, it's impacting cravings, it's impacting our ability to store fat. So it's fascinating from a physiological and hormonal perspective and from a dietetic perspective, what we work in and even exercise. If there's so many different layers, it's a really interesting area because it's quite complicated.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that insulin is this sort of storage hormone where obviously a lot of people are storing extra fat mass. Do people with insulin resistance tend to have a higher muscle mass as well? Yes, absolutely. They do. They tend to be larger frame people
1: because their bodies are constantly in a state of store and build. So, this explains why, and going back 20 years when I started as a dietitian, I would have clients come in, and dietitians listening to this will identify with this, or even, even um, people listening will identify if you struggle losing weight, that you can be eating really healthy, you can even be eating calorie control, but no matter what you do, you basically can't lose weight. So a person who doesn't have insulin resistance will have a calorie deficit, follow their meal plan, make sure that they're exercising, and they'll lose half to a kilo a week. People with insulin resistance will eat the same number of calories and exercise and they might shift 100 grams because if that insulin is high enough and, again, there's degrees of that, some people will be less resistant than others. Mm. People who are highly insulin resistant will have so much insulin floating around that it's actively blocking fat loss because it's telling the body to store and build. And that's the scenario where people can say, why is my diet not working? I'm following it and that's when I will sometimes be suspicious is insulin-resistant present, which is blocking and actually inhibiting their, their ability to metabolize fat. Mm. So, yes, they will have more fat and also more muscle tissue. So that is why someone with insulin resistance will go into the gym and do weight training and not lose weight because their body will store and build muscle much easier than someone who doesn't have insulin resistance. And my numbers are about an uh, insulin resistant person will have 25 to 30% more muscle mass than a person who doesn't have insulin resistance, which is why they may look like they're 70 kilos, but they weigh 80. And it's also why a lot of ex-athletes, so water polo players, swimmers, rugby players will
0: have insulin resistance because it's associated with that muscle bulk as well. Yeah, interesting. It's great from a metabolic perspective, isn't it? I mean, once you get everything else under control.
1: (laughs) It is, but then it comes down to changing body composition. Yes. Because some women, even though they're leaner and have more muscle mass, they may want to be lighter. Mm. So then it's about how do we actually break down muscle mass the right way to change body composition. So there's a lot of specificity that comes with diet, changing the diet, working with the hormones, but then also the exercise regimes to make sure you're achieving the body composition or losing body fat rather than just seeing
0: changes on the scale. So it's 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 really fascinating. Absolutely. And then how does somebody, I guess, go on to develop insulin resistance? Like we mentioned, there are some genetic markers, there are some cultural sort of backgrounds that are probably more predisposed to it. What are the biggest ones um, that the research sort of tells us? Well, as I said,
1: it's really early stage diabetes. So for
0: anyone who's got a
1: family history of type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes, gestational diabetes, highly predictive. So The numbers I'm aware of, if you've had gestational diabetes in a pregnancy, the chance you'll get to type 2 within 10 years is incredibly high. So that's a really important intervention point for women. If you've had gestational diabetes and were quite lean and fit and suggestive of a high genetic component, you want to be onto your diet straight after pregnancy to try and prevent basically diabetes. Because the great thing about insulin resistance, Leanne, and why I love working in it, Is traditionally in medical models, we have waited till people get to pre diabetes or diabetes until we do anything, which is just ridiculous. You know, if we know that people with gestational diabetes or insulin resistance will basically go on to develop diabetes, why are we not identifying and managing it the 10 to 20 years prior when people have the cycle of weight gain? So, in answer specifically to the question, As soon as there's a genetic predisposition to diabetes in the family, generally all clients I'll say, does anyone in the family have diabetes? Absolutely. Aunts, uncles, mum, dad, grandparents Mm. all had diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, I should specify in particular. Gestational diabetes, but also some cultural groups. So certainly people from um, Indian culture backgrounds and Islander populations at much higher risk genetically. Indigenous populations have about three times the chance of developing insulin resistance. And if you look at the numbers of pre-diabetics in Australia, it's about over 3 million. So I would say all of those people are insulin resistance and should be managed aggressively as such. So it's a huge area to intervene in for medically and for dieticians, but we still don't really diagnose it or identify it early enough in my mind because the earlier you intervene, the better it is for outcome. And ultimately, these people won't get diabetes, which we don't want because diabetes is such an awful condition when it comes to our cell health and longevity and long-term chronic disease
0: hundred percent. And it makes me so sad because I used to work in public health and there's a funding that we actually put to, the government puts towards our public health budget every year is just appalling. Like I think it's a one to 2% of the health budget goes to actually preventing diseases. So yeah, why aren't we targeting these people and helping them before it becomes full blown diabetes and they're having to inject insulin and carbohydrates and all of that thing. And it's so much harder once you actually have type two diabetes to actually try and reverse that. Whereas, as you said, if you can and you know, have it through gestational diabetes or a little bit of insulin resistance, there are so many steps you can do to kind of backpedal and, and get on top of it and really even reverse that and, and get yourself healthy again. So we definitely want to intervene sooner rather than after. But as you said, it's not really talked about it, it's not things that GPs typically screen for. You know, you go in, they do your blood pressure, they might check your cholesterol. But when was the last time a GP said, Oh, we'll check you for insulin resistance? So what I would love to know from you is how do we diagnose it? You mentioned that there's a medical model and a medical criteria. Is it as simple as a blood test, or are there certain criteria that we need to meet? Like somebody who might have PCOS, for example, there's a couple of criteria you need to meet to be diagnosed with that. 100% there's diagnostic criteria.
1: And it is quite expensive to run the bloods, and also the assay that Um, assessed insulin levels wasn't even um, developed until the year 2000. So it's quite relatively new. And that's part of the reason that some doctors won't be across it as an active point. And also, I think often GPs are sort of in a rush and sort of just hoping that there's no diabetes present as opposed to running the insulin. So the true diagnostic criteria, and there's a few, is a glucose tolerance test with insulin levels. So anyone who's had a baby will know that at 20 weeks, you go and have your glucose test where you basically check the the glucose and they're seeing how your muscle metabolizes that glucose over one, zero, one, and two hours. Now, if you ask for insulin with that, you would also see what's happening with your insulin levels. So you can have a completely normal baseline insulin, a fasting insulin and glucose, and have severe insulin resistance. And that's where it's tricky because some doctors will just order a fasting insulin and it comes back normal. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, it's not there, but that's not really diagnostic at, at a sensitive level. So I like a client to have a glucose tolerance with insulin, which means that the, they'll also check insulin at zero, one, and two hours. And as I said, quite often people will peak at one hour or two hours and, and have a completely normal glucose. So, but doctors will not always ask for that because it's expensive to run. They may infer just a fasting, they may run a HbA1c, which is to see what's going on with your glucose regulation. Some, if I'm honestly, Anne, some of the endos I work with will just assume because it's so telling on the eye what's going on, right? Mm. So, insulin is so specific the way it deposits in the body, mm. it deposits centrally. Yeah, yep. And that's why people who um, I do a lot of work in perimenopause, which is those years prior to menopause, or postmenopausal women, when you lose that protective effect of estrogen, when your period stops, your insulin bumps up often because you lose that effect and you start to gain weight centrally, which can exacerbate insulin resistance. So that's the relationship there and why women will suddenly develop a gut in their 50s and 60s that they can't stand. Any waist measurement over 100 is is suggestive of insulin resistance. Absolutely. So if you see someone who has relatively thin muscular arms and legs and a big belly round, they've got insulin resistance. I can pick, I can look and tell. If you're more than 20 kilos overweight, probably a degree of insulin resistance. Now, you may be able to lose weight, which would suggest your insulin is still working quite well, and that may be because you do exercise and eat relatively well, and that hormone just needs some management. But you do get people with what I call that very hard fat, which they're so solid around the middle. That fat's been there a long time. It's suggestive of the insulin not working well for many years, and that's severe, now, we'll talk about medications in a minute because that's been such a buzz area and, and change in terms of aggressive management of insulin in the last couple of years. But I can eyeball it. And also I can tell because if I put clients on a, a what I call an insulin resistance plan, which is very specific macronutrient ratios, and they respond well, I know the resistance isn't bad. Mm-hmm. But if I run someone um, and for two, four, six weeks and they lose like one kilo and they're compliant, and they've got to waste over 100 and they weigh 20 kilos more than they should, I know they've got insulin resistance. I may push them then to an endo or request a GTT with insulin to try and justify medication. I'm not a doctor, but I work in this area and I work closely with endos, so I can kind of roughly tell where people are sitting just by how their body responds mm-hmm. to dietary intervention. But yes, it, true diagnostic would be uh, with an endocrinologist or GP on a GTT with insulin levels and checking the reference ranges. But, yeah, some may look at just an HBA or a fasting insulin. Can you
0: tell diagnostically from a HBA1C? It will just be
1: high though yeah, because it would be more suggestive of Mm pre-diabetes than it would insulin resistance. And it's not overly sensitive. Luckily, weight is also not a matter of two or five kilos. It's often a case of 20, 30 kilos. And so um, you can kind of tell if it's – if you've got an elevated HBA1C and you're overweight, you've probably got insulin – you'll have insulin resistance. So you can kind of infer it. Um, rather than diagnosing diabetes, which may be a few points on a
0: GT. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's take a quick healthy break and a quick breather. If you have a smartwatch, check your stats. If you had a Garmin, you'd be able to check your health stats for up to 11 days on one charge. It's a smartwatch that spends more time on your wrist and less time on charge. So, if you're tired of charging your fitness smartwatch every night, get a Garmin. Wearing your smartwatch for longer could give you a more complete picture of your health. A Garmin can help you manage your stress levels with relaxation, reminders, and short breathing activities when your watch detects that you're stressed. It can monitor your energy levels throughout the day, so you can find the best times for activity and rest. And it also has a hydration tracking tool that allows you to log your daily fluid intake. Now, you can do more on a single charge. See which Garmin suits you at garmin.com.au and use my code LEANNE10 on any venue SQ2 for a limited time only. Now, let's get back to our show. And then I guess the question that a lot of people are thinking, we've mentioned that weight and that central storage around that tummy area is a big sort of classic hallmark symptom. Do you need to be overweight to have insulin resistance?
1: No, you don't. That's really fascinating and I'm glad you've asked it. There's certainly a, a group. Now, if I was estimating the percentages, so say of the 100 women I see who have got insulin resistance, I would say 95 would be overweight. <laughs> so it's highly predictive because that's the cycle. Yeah. You know, we're eating too much carbohydrate, too much fat, we're storing weight, we're not moving enough. And then if you've got genetics, that's rolling the insulin up. And particularly if your weight's gradually increased by 10, 20 kilos over 10 years, you know, and you're in your 40s and 50s, and this has been a long-term issue. But occasionally you'll have what I call the lean PCOS type girl who presents, who might be someone who looks a little bit like Victoria Beckham. They're quite slim, but genetically they have insulin resistance or even pre-diabetes. So I actually work with someone, a dietitian who has just got really harsh genes and she's genetically, even though she eats beautifully, to dietitian. Her body, for a number of reasons, um, has just been predisposed. She had gestational diabetes. She's almost diabetic. She's always had insulin resistance. So yes, you do have some leaner people who are at very high risk. But in terms of where we work in overweight, it's quite rare you would have that really.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: It's much more common to be linked to lifestyle and weight and it's exacerbated by such. It's certainly people who have had gestational and always quite lean regardless, which may be that subgroup who can be lean, but still have their pancreas not behaving itself.
0: Mm. And what would someone who is in that you know 5% category, there might be one or two listeners out there who are thinking, oh, well, I don't present with the classic hallmark symptoms. What would be the biggest symptom that would cause someone to present to a doctor or to a dietitian if they were super lean? Like, What would be the big symptom you'd see in that group?
1: Abnormal period. Yeah, okay. Abnormal period maybe a PCOS type um, presentation, so perhaps bad skin, acanthosis, which is the dark and pigmented skin, particularly Indian, uh, Islander background, so leaner. So actually, just thinking of a few of my clients, certainly leaner clients, Indian background, who may be quite small but still have severe insulin resistance at a much lower weight would be some telltale signs. And I would say calories in are not matching what's happening on the, with waste, et cetera, so they're not eating much and really healthy and yet they're still not perhaps as lean as they would be if you looked at their diet and exercise, could be some signs. And they may still have a, a greater deposit around their waist. So they might be normal weight, but their waist might be proportionally larger than the rest of them because underlying they're still depositing. Mm-hmm. So they may be, you know, at leanest a waist of 60, 65. So I'm talking a small person who might have an Indian background, so a very small frame. But their waist is still 80, even though the rest of them's tiny. So a disproportionate waist um, thickening,
0: mm-hmm. which is again indicative of that hormone misbehaving and depositing where it shouldn't be. 100%. And I think it's just a really good reminder to. Really be our own advocates, isn't it? Like if you've had a blood test with a GP and they're like, you're not diabetic, your cholesterol's good, there's nothing wrong with you, but you know that something's going on, you've got this, you know, terrible adult acne, or your energy levels are in the tank, or you're just having these constant cravings or these massive drops in your blood glucose level, that's a sign to push harder, find a new GP, go to someone who specializes in these type of hormonal areas, such as PCOS, such as insulin resistance. Like I think sometimes. We have to be our own advocates because you're right. GPS are so busy; they're so overwhelmed. They have a million other things to think of when you're sitting in there and you've got ten minutes in the consult. But I really think that we have to we have to advocate for ourselves, don't we?
1: Yeah, and actually, you've just made me think it's miscarriage too, because if you have someone with an MTHFR mutation, which I think we've mentioned on Nutrition Couch before, mm, which is a folate yeah. metabolism, it's actually closely linked to pro-inflammatory conditions, including insulin resistance. So when I worked back with Dr. Kitson, he would be often seeing women who came through with miscarriage, and they were quite lean, but when he'd test the insulin, it was through the roof. So that can be another sign, fertility issues. Um, and I know you've spoken to several fertility experts. We don't do, I don't do a huge amount of fertility work only indirectly through this work, mm-hmm. but the fertility dieticians will see it as well because it may come through with an MTHFR mutation or miscarriage unexplained. Um, and then if you have a look at the insulins, that's underlying hormones that are uh, associated and linked to that. So that's worth considering too, yeah. what your insulin's doing
0: if you're having trouble falling pregnant. So this is why I just, I love doing this podcast because I get to talk to experts such as yourself and I'm sure that you've helped one, two, five, a hundred, a 1, thousand people out there just by that simple sentence of or a couple of things that people can look for and push for their GP and actually just be like, Hey, something's not right. I need, I need more answers kind of thing. Like, I just love that we can give this free advice to people all around the world. Isn't it amazing? I freaking love my job. I really love my job. Well, there's some really powerful things that
1: happen because I often say to my girls, if they come and they do they're insulin resistance and overweight, they want to get pregnant. And I'll say, look, I'm going to warn you that as soon as you lose a little bit of weight, you might have a weight loss goal of 20 kilos. And in your head, you're thinking, I'm going to see the dietitian now because I want to lose the weight before I try and fall pregnant. But (laughs) as soon as you lose like two, three, five kilos, which programs that you and I do will achieve that, they're designed to give you good weight loss results. We're not here to muck around, as I say. Fertility seems to increase really quickly. So your body responds really well to calorie deficit. And so I'll say to them, look, and they'll get pregnant and I'll be like, that was not the plan. Like, (laughs) you know, you said you were giving me six months, 12 months, and now you're knocked up because (laughs) your sensitivity improved really quickly. So I will say that if you do have insulin resistance or weight, it, it just seems anecdotally to increase fertility really quickly. So just be aware of that. Because when they call me and say they're pregnant, I'm like, oh, we didn't finish our job.
0: <laughs> That's so funny because I've had two clients in the last couple of weeks. they both one reached week nine with me, one reached week 11 with me out of the 12. And both of them are pregnant. They've been trying for years. Mm. And they're like, oh, I've just undone all of my hard work. I'm like, you can't think of it that way. We got you to the end goal that you wanted, you know, like you're starting the pregnancy in the healthiest version that you are. But it's so funny that you're right. That happens, isn't it? The infertility just improved. Well... It's also good though because if you are insulin resistant and pregnant you want to keep that weight
1: so controlled and because metabolically your body's in a great stage in pregnancy I can do some really good work with pregnant women by preventing weight gain in pregnancy because the hormones behave a lot better in pregnancy once you're pregnant I can get fat off really successfully if they really keep close dibs on their pregnancy weight gain so it can be really powerful if they stick with the plan um, in getting some fat off when the body was quite stubborn prior to that. So pregnancy can be a really interesting time to work with people, but it's like anything you've got to keep turning up and keep your eye on the prize to Mm. make the most Mm. of that process and not
0: sort of give yourself permission to gain too much. But that's a whole different podcast. (laughs) We don't have time for that today. (laughs) No, But we'll ask quickly. (laughs) Obviously, you're at a higher risk if you've had gestational diabetes. If you have insulin resistance, you go on to get pregnant. Are you then at a higher risk of developing GD as well? hundred percent. Oh, hundred hundred percent. And
1: hence, there's no more important time for someone with insulin resistance than when they're pregnant. Mm. That is the time to do your best dietetic work to prevent weight gain and make the most of the metabolic changes while you are pregnant and prevent the weight going up as high as it would naturally um, and working closely with an endocrinologist. So that is the best time for dietary intervention with people with insulin resistance is when Mm. they are pregnant and to
0: clarify we're not saying
1: prevent prevent all weight gain it's fine if you know you can we minimize wanna, yeah, yeah and do it yeah, the right yeah. way and so when you come post pregnancy you don't leave yourself at high risk of developing diabetes within that sort of 10 year period
0: post postpartum yeah because with if you're not really controlling the diet somebody with insulin resistance or um, gd could very easily gain 20 30 40 kilos in their pregnancy or become diabetic in pregnancy mm-hmm.
1: You know, and that's what we want to avoid, like like the plague. So yeah, (laughs) like well, you do it's yeah, you want to avoid it at all costs. So it's really important time for dietary intervention.
0: Wonderful. And then speaking of dietary intervention, what are some nutrition strategies to assist with insulin resistance? Because I think a lot of people are thinking carbs, 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 can I eat them? Are they bad? How much? Like, yeah. What are the number sort of one or two nutrition intervention strategies we really want to think about in insulin resistance? It's a really interesting area and I think the guidelines of
1: this will change profoundly in the next 5, 10, 20 years just because of of understanding this uh, time and this preceding condition to type 2 and with the goal of preventing and reversing it. So first of all, I think our gut feel is that if it's a problem with carbohydrate metabolism, cut the carbs. So if you go on a low-carb diet, So I'm talking, say, really high protein. So protein shake for breakfast, tuna salad for lunch, snacking on nuts, salmon, veggies for dinner, minimizing carbohydrate intake. So taking it to less than 20% of intake, even keto. The issue with that is it masks the problem, Leanne, because it doesn't fix the resistance. It just pretends it's not there. Now, the issue is if if you followed a low-carbohydrate diet with insulin resistance forever, you'd probably get pretty good results. Yes, it would bring down your glucose levels. Yes, you'd lose weight. And it's, a, it's an option, and certainly there's more evidence to show that there's benefits for low, specifically low-carbohydrate diets. But, and this is the big but, people don't do them. They do convenient low-carb for me. So they do low-carb a day or two, and then they go out on the weekends and have brunch and alcohol and treats and snacks because most of the foods we enjoy eating have carbohydrates in them, bread, socialising, restaurant meals, uh, treats. So if you can't stick to low carb all the time, it's not for you. A much better sustainable model is to work out what your sweet spot with carbohydrate is and reduce it. Absolutely, a high carb diet is the worst thing you can be doing. And high carb, I'm talking 50 60%. But you may be someone who can successfully lose body fat at one or two, three kilos a month on 40% carbohydrate. You may even be able to do 50 if you exercise a lot. And that's where the dietetic specificity comes in. Everyone is different because it's not a one-size-fits-all diagnosis. Everyone's degree of insulin resistance will be different and everyone's lifestyle will be different. And that's where dietitians come in to be able to match the best dietary intervention for you that's giving you outcome, but also life and food enjoyment. So the first port of intervention is to give the right carbohydrate load. So it is a heavy carbohydrate focus. The next thing is protein is our wonder nutrient because protein helps to keep glucose levels controlled and also keep us full. So it's basically a a reduced-carbohydrate, higher-protein meal plan. But as we know as dietitians, there's an art to developing those in a way that is sustainable for people. So, you know, people can do shorter-term programs. You can go and do a keto meal replacement and shift 10 kilos quickly. Absolutely. There's different strokes for different folks. You can even use fasting, but it's just not a one-size-fits-all model. It's about linking the dietary prescription to the individual and their degree of insulin resistance and there's certain little tricks to it as well, like getting the fat balances right is, very, is anti-inflammatory. So we do a lot of work on the types of fats and the amounts. And then, of course, we also do a lot of work with exercise long-term to get that balance of carbohydrate, calories, fat types, and then the balance of activity. So they're kind of the main areas that we'll be working on um, and very powerful in terms of anti-inflammatory diets because insulin is a pro-inflammatory hormone and that's why it's associated with a number of those other disease states. So yeah, there's a lot of dietary tricks and tips and changes that come as the process comes because basically what we're doing is rehabbing the muscle and getting it to burn carbohydrate better so you can enjoy food but still maintain the body composition and weight and insulin levels that will leave you healthy long-term.
0: So would you say that this is a fair statement? Low-carb diets work for insulin resistance if you can maintain them consistently long-term. Yes, and that's what the evidence shows. But that's also the problem, right? Because most people can't.
1: Most <laughs> people don't 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 do them. They think they do them, but they're actually just doing high protein. They're not often doing low carb or it's convenient diets for me. I'll do it for three days. And then the other issue I have is that often low carb diets are not overly nutrient dense. So they've got a lot of crap in them. You know what I mean? They've got a lot of Avo, and not that Avo is crap, but you know, it's it's not giving all the
0: nutrients that we need for health. There's a lot of processed protein bars and, yes, you know, all protein shit. chips like, and that yes, sort of thing.
1: protein, like, processed food, and you're not getting things like whole grains and you're not getting your fresh fruits or I'm not eating potato, you know, like it, it sort of gives you a much more processed type of diet, which isn't as healthy, you know, as dietitians, we want people to eat whole natural food as much as we can. To give the nutrients that we know come from real, real food, Mm -hmm. whereas a lot of low carb products are heavily processed, and that's not a healthier diet or better for us, you know. And there's like you know, with dietitians, there's an art. I can do a thirty percent carb or forty percent carb diet without using those processed foods. So I'd much rather do that holistically than I would give people a, a short term diet that then they have to you know, they go off and then they put everything back on again. It starts them in the diet cycle, which is what as dietitians, we're trying to avoid.
0: Mm-mm. And when you take out the carbs, like you mentioned with breakfast, if someone was to have, um, you know, a couple of bits of toast with some eggs or some avocado or something, you take the toast out, people tend to replace it with some bacon or some sausages or, you know, some halloumi. So you're actually adding a lot more saturated fat in, then you're skewing that balance. And it's calories, you know, it's still calories. Actually, I'll give you an example. I've just had a client,
1: just this, just today, and I, she's insulin resistant. She's been insulin resistance a long time. She's trying to avoid medication, which you can absolutely, and some people may need, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So I said to her, look, because she's done the diet several times and she's come back. And I said to her, can you just send me some photos of your food? Because I'm a bit suspicious, right? Because she's telling me one thing, but doesn't equate. So she sent me her dinner and it was a beautiful, it's summer in, in Australia at the moment, and it was beautiful prawn salad. And the prawn salad had a little bit of leaves bit of tomato. And then it had quite a few big prawns, which is fine. Prawns are quite low calorie. They're good protein. And then she had mango. Now it was a lot of mango. It would have been at least half, if not more, slithered on the top. And then it had corn in it. So it's very healthy, but it's not right for insulin resistance because too much carbohydrate, because that would have had 30 to 40 grams. It's too much for her because I know her activity. I know her demands. I'm trying to get her into fat loss. And she didn't even think that that was a problem because it was fruit. So the specificity that's there, particularly in the early stages of reversing insulin resistance is enormous. And that's where the the benefits of dieticians are because we're across that. Whereas people would think that's healthy. How can that be a bad salad? It's not a bad salad, but it's not right for her with
0: insulin resistance. Interesting. And we've mentioned medications a few times. now. As dieticians, we're very pro-lifestyle and nutrition interventions first We're very pro, you know, nutrition and lifestyle interventions versus dietitians, but what medications can assist with insulin resistance? And when would we be looking at utilizing some of those medications? Like what would be the big tipping point where you'd go, you know what, diet's not working or I actually need the help of a medication with some of these dietary strategies? And this is what I will preempt any
1: conversation with a client as well with.
0: So I will
1: always start clients, even if I think they're insulin resistance, on a calorie controlled, reduced carbohydrate, higher protein plan with loads of veggies because we love veggies. Now, if they haven't lost a good amount of weight after two, four, six weeks, and so I'm talking at least two to three kilos, that is when I will start to mention medication. Or if my client's coming in at 20, 30, 40 kilos over or waist over 100, I will suspect they may need medication. Now, in the old days, there was... The main medication for insulin resistance was metformin, which is an insulin sensitizer. So it's a pretty harsh medication. It works in the gut and basically it improves the cell wall's ability to take insulin in and helps to regulate glucose levels. It doesn't act on the pancreas to produce more insulin. It's just working as a sensitizer. It can be quite hard on the gut So and it's quite general. So people will start on a low dose. They might notice quite distinct um, sort of bloating and, and absorption issues in the gut. And it will work, but it will t- it's a slow burn, It's sort of three, six months, and it will then improve the insulin levels and you'll start to get quicker weight loss after quite a long period, which is it's sort of slow and steady. And indeed, some endocrinologists will keep gestational diabetics or ex-gestational diabetes or very high-risk people on a low dose of metformin long-term because knowing that it will just help in the background and particularly if you can tolerate it, but it's quite slow burn when it comes to weight loss. Then we didn't have a lot of other medications, you know. And what's happened in the last couple of years, and you would have heard about this in the media if you're interested in in weight loss or or diabetes, is that there's been this new wave of drugs that have come through, which I have to say, Leanne, have revolutionized the dietary, or not dietary, the management, medical management of insulin resistance and pre-diabetes in the country. So the first lot that came through were appetite acting aids, so things like Contrave and Saxenda. Now, they have a profound effect on appetite because one of the issues with insulin resistance is that you're often very hungry because your natural digestion and metabolism is not working like it should. So a normal person without insulin resistance will eat a meal, be full for two, three, four hours, then be hungry again and want to eat. Someone with insulin resistance can be hungry an hour later because their natural process of glucose metabolism is not working as it should. So they eat their meal, and then the body, the insulin's not enough, so the insulin secretes more, and then all of a sudden they get a flood into the cell and then they feel tired and hungry again. So it's all abnormal every meal, and that's why they don't feel well. So what has happened with contraven saxenda, they're kind of appetite-acting agents and indirectly affecting insulin. So it helps people to not be hungry. So all of a sudden they can be a bit more diet-compliant they're not having these terrible cravings that they once had and they can stick to their diet and lose weight. So that's one group of drugs. And indeed, I've had clients who have had the help of those and they've lost 30, 40 kilos a lot easier than they would have when they only had metformin. But what has changed is when Peak came to the market. So Peak is the one you're hearing about in the media a lot. Mm-hmm. They call it a diabetes medication because it is a diabetes medication. But it can have really amazing effects for those with insulin resistance because not only does it still work on those appetite receptors to help reduce glucose levels and control appetite, the same as the appetite um, medications, but it also stimulates insulin production in the pancreas. So it's working on the problem, which is what we've never had before. And so all of a sudden, these poor women, now I say women because I primarily work with women, and, and, but of course, men it will have the same response in men. All of a sudden these poor women who could not lose weight on diet alone have had a medication that's working on the problem which is the pancreas and all of a sudden the insulin levels are down they're not hungry and they can stick to their diets and lose huge amounts of weight so for the right person ozempic and like those that set type of drugs can basically will prevent diabetes and i think it will revolutionize it now the problem is that there's a shortage worldwide because yeah. everyone's aware of how amazing yeah. <laughs> it is. So when you see girls who are on TikTok and social media and saying they've lost 30, 40 kilos and they had PCOS, they'll be on that, they'll be on Ozempic because it's actually a drug that's targeting the problem and then they don't, they don't have as much trouble with their diet because they're not terribly hungry all the time. Now, at the moment, it's implicated for diabetes. Now, that's fine, but there's other medications people with diabetes can use, but that's one of the only ones that will... I believe revolutionize and prevent diabetes in a country because it will target those with insulin resistance and pre-diabetes. And we will get to a stage where that is a routine management. Now it's like all drugs, there's pros and cons. Mm. You know, there's risks associated. So it's not something that we should be using forever, but it certainly can be very powerful at reversing insulin resistance and helping people be diet compliant. But Leanne, I'll have clients who don't respond to it. So Some of my best clients have been on a very low dose, 0.25, and lost 30, 40 kilos over two years. Note the two years, it's not two months, two years, but they're also diet compliant. But if I have clients who eat through it so they don't listen to the lack of appetite and keep eating, it doesn't work, and I'll have some of those insulin-resistant people who will dose it right up to, to one, up to two, Four times the dose of others, and they're not getting weight loss because they're not doing their diet. Mm. So that's the other thing. You know, it's a, a three pronged approach. It has to be diet, exercise, and the medication to allow this insulin cycle to reverse. But if you keep eating, eating, I was going to swear. But if you keep eating rubbish <laughs> and eat through it and don't exercise, you're not reversing the insulin resistance. So you use the medication to help help you. Mm. And it can be very powerful. But if your lifestyle habits haven't changed, it won't work. And I'm like you. We were talking before we started recording. I've had clients prescribe Ozempic, Peak and they're not insulin resistant. Yes. This won't work. Yeah. It's a drug for insulin. If you're an overeater, there's other drugs for you. Or therapies. But it's expensive as well. <laughs> yeah. So it will revolutionize and prevent a whole cohort of people getting diabetes if it's used correctly. Mm. But they have to commit to dietary and, and lifestyle change or it will just mask the problem briefly. And you'll be back where you started and you'll get diabetes. Yeah, it's not a
0: magic pill. So there's
1: a lot of work in this space. And I'll say that to my clients. I've got clients who will lose 30 kilos on 0.25 and ones who nothing's happening at 1. Well, I know that either they're not insulin resistant or they're still
0: eating. Mm-hmm. So it's not a miracle drug. You actually no. have to do the it's work. Like and you I have think, to do the work, yeah. I think the media is touting it as this new miracle thing. But one, as you mentioned, it's not a weight loss drug. It's for people with insulin resistance or diabetics. And two, as you said, there are side effects. People get you know crazy amounts of nausea, that sort of thing. It's expensive. There's a huge lack of supply. Um, so it's actually really hard to get a hold of and it can work for the right person, as you mentioned, but it is not a miracle. Um, we actually do need the support of dietitians and endocrinologists and GPs as well. So it's part of a what you would call a medical management plan, isn't it?
1: A hundred percent. And I work really closely with good GPs who are experienced or endocrinologists and my work can happen in the background and sometimes I won't need medication from clients who aren't so insulin resistant. But definitely you want to seek out uh, medical doctors and those who have experience with insulin resistance and understand what's going on biochemically and hormonally to manage it appropriately long term over the course of your life. Because if you're 30 or 40, you want to be off to manage this insulin for another 30, 40 years. And that requires a lot of attention
0: and time to do it the right way. And that was going to be my next question for you around the importance of linking in with an endocrinologist. Is insulin resistance something that a standard GP can manage or should you be pushing for a specialist referral?
1: A good GP can manage it 100%, um, but you do have to get a GP who perhaps has an interest in weight management and doesn't sort of bring their personal beliefs around who should have medication and who shouldn't, who actually understands what's going on or, or GPs who work closely with dietitians and they'll be across that. Um, I will seek out an endo referral when there's perhaps more complex medical history. So if there's a, a strong um, history of gestational diabetes or polycystic ovaries and a little bit more complicated, and it won't hurt to go to an endo, but like, all oh, some endos aren't overly interested in weight management. So you certainly want a female hormone specialist who, and I say female because we mainly, I mainly work with women, um, who has an interest in that area and is across the latest drugs and doesn't just send you away saying diet and exercise because you know, it's a, it's a cost to go to medical specialists. So you want to make sure you've got the right one. And certainly, you know, in states, and even now we can work remotely. Um, I've got, you know, a handful in Sydney and Melbourne that I know are across this area. And if I want a medical opinion on, I'll send them. And the same with a good GP. A good GP who'll do weight management will be across these new medications and be aware um of how to use them the right way and how to diagnose and, and see the benefits that come from getting weight off and reversing um insulin resistance, outweigh any of the negatives with waiting till people get to
0: a stage of pre-diabetes or diabetes. Mm, absolutely. All right, Susie, well we've taken up so much of your valuable time, but my last question for you will really be your top take-home message for our listeners if they have insulin resistance, what is the one thing that you would really recommend for them as a starting point?
1: First of all, I'd say if you struggle to lose weight and you know you eat pretty well and your waist is over 90 or 100 centimetres, I'd be starting to look at your insulin levels, particularly if you're in your 40s or 50s, because this is going to really impact your disease, your body's risk of developing disease. So it's a very powerful intervention point. I think the top tip I would say is apart from see a dietitian, (laughs) Put your diet, a day of your diet in MyFitnessPal, it's free, and have a look and see how much carbohydrate you're eating because nothing is more powerful than seeing a number. And if you put your diet in and you're eating 150, 200, 300 grams of carbohydrate a day, that's way too much. So I think starting to understand what you're actually eating and being honest about that is an easy thing that we can all do just to get an idea about actually what's going into our diet and how much we're having. Because it's a carbohydrate metabolism issue, and, and just being aware of your carbohydrate loads and bringing them down per meal, you know, having 20, 30, 40 grams a meal rather than 100 is going to make a massive impact on your body's insulin levels and management strategy. Um, but apart from that, I'd say see a dietitian. You know, this is our area, this is a great area for dietitians to specialize in hormonal management. and. Ultimately, it's a very powerful point because it's going to stop you getting diabetes
0: and no one wants to get diabetes if you don't have to. But percent Yeah, I've worked in hospitals such as you for a very long time and actually seeing those diabetic complications, once you have them, it's, it's almost too late, isn't it? Like it's so hard to come back from there. So anything we can do to prevent it- It's really it-
1: hard to reverse. It's not hard to, you can reverse insulin resistance, but you can't, it's very difficult to reverse diabetes once it's there. Particularly
0: once you've got the diabetic complications that that come with really poorly controlled diabetes.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's severely limiting, you know, health-wise, long-term. And if you think of cohorts of boomers who might live till they're 90, you don't want to have
0: to be managing diabetes if you don't have to. Absolutely. All right, Susie. Well, we would love to hear about your new coaching models. So a little birdie tells me that you are offering coaching for insulin resistance. Uh, in females. Tell us a little bit more about that. I do. So I um, have had some very good business advice from a colleague recently
1: (laughs) who's telling me that I need to work a bit smarter perhaps, but not even that. I think that I only really see insulin resistant clients now who have significant amounts of weight to lose. I don't have capacity to see so many clients. So I sort of do a handful each month and I primarily offer a, a program for those with insulin resistance that runs over 12 weeks. Or 12 to 24 weeks, you can stretch it over six months because it takes that long, Leanne, to undo insulin resistance. It's not a short term program. It requires a lot of attention, a lot of adjustment with the diet. And so I have details of that available on my website, uh, susyburrell.com.au. We often update people with the latest in research. I know that recently you did a podcast with um, Professor John Hawley, who is brilliant and had worked on the exercise and dietary um, models that he's been trying with insulin resistance, which is interesting as well. But myself, I really focus in with those clients over three, six months to really break the back of the resistance and get a long-term program. And we look at adjusting the diet regularly, incorporating activity, and really unraveling what's going on hormonally to take control of it. So if you do have insulin resistance and know that you need to lose a good amount of weight, I'm talking 20, 30 kilos, know your insulin resistance or think you could be, definitely have a look at that because it's a specialist dietetic area and it's certainly something I have a great interest in and get
0: good results with my clients. Absolutely. Susie is your girl. Um, and do you do international clients as well? Say, for example, someone's listening from New York or someone's listening from Italy. Do you do international or is it just Aussie-based only? No, I do international. I've got, who have I got at the moment? Canada,
1: New Zealand, Singapore. It's funny actually, isn't it? You don't realise that they're overseas until they say, oh, I'm actually 11 hours behind. And I'm like, oh, yeah, my yeah, God, yeah. where are you? <laughs> Because Zoom has made me, and that's probably off the back of COVID. You know, I had a clinic. Everyone came to me. Now I see people only online and like like you, and it's fantastic because you can see people all over Australia. Um, I was just up at Yamba for holidays and a client in Cole said to me, oh, hi, Susie. I see Leanne. I was like, oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> so we, have, we see people everywhere. So yes. In answer to your question anywhere, any insulin resistance around the world, I, I'm here for you. That's funny. She did reach out to me
0: she goes, I'm a bit starstruck. I just read it to Susie and Coles. And I was like, oh, that's so funny. Like what a small world. Col- and I was like, "In I was like,
1: oh my God, what's up, what have I got in my bag? What am I holding? <laughs> I was like, oh my Lord. <laughs> she was lovely. Shout out. To your lovely
0: client in Yambo, thanks for listening. Shout out to Amber, she she is a legend. Alright, well that brings us to the end of today's potty. Um, Actually, you're quite big on socials as well, so let us know where we can give you a follow on Instagram and on Facebook as well. Just for anyone who perhaps has a friend or a family member with insulin resistance, they want to point them towards you to, you know, give you a bit of a follow first to build that sort of, you know, reputation and stuff up.
1: So I am Susie Burrell Dietitian on both Facebook and Instagram and I do feed quite a lot of recipes. Most of my stuff is sort of carbohydrate focused because that's my main client group. So I'm just thinking what I tend to put on, but yeah, most of it is pretty user-friendly for insulin resistance because that's mostly what I do.
0: Mm -hmm. And if you've loved this chat today, Susie and I chit-chat twice a week on the Nutrition Catch podcast, absolutely go give that a listen. It's available on any of the leading podcast apps, Spotify, um, Google Podcasts, that sort of thing. So go give us a listen there. We upload a Sunday and a Wednesday episode every single week. So thank you my love for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure as always and I'll probably chat to you tomorrow. <laughs> we, we've got a lot to talk about, don't we? Think you going for hours. Have, to have a trip soon. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right my love. Thank you.